Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Content Management Bible Podcast. Uh, this is Dean. It has been a while since we've talked. I think it's been five weeks since I did the last episode. I do have a good excuse. Unfortunately, I did come down with COVID. Um, I am making this episode on October 19th, so we're about seven months into the COVID pandemic. And so I made it seven months, but I did come down with COVID. I was very sick. And um, so it has been about five weeks since I did the last episode. I I feel like I should apologize. I want to say I'm sorry that it's been so long, but I'm, I'm resisting the urge to apologize. Um, back in the introduction to this podcast, uh, I made the point that um, I'm taking a very low stress approach to this podcast. Um, I don't want to sound callous or flippant about it, but I kind of do an episode when everything comes together to do an episode. So I'm going to resist the urge to apologize. Um, it's just been five weeks and this is the first chance I've had to do an episode. Um, as always, thanks for tuning in. I'm always amazed when I see the number of people that download the episodes. Um, I think I mentioned in a prior episode that I told myself if, uh, five people listen to this, then it's worth doing. And as I mentioned before, I have about 50, it seems about 50 people download every episode. So, uh, very exciting and very fun for me. Um, we're on chapter four. And the chapter is entitled Functionality is Content 2, has exclamation point at the end, but I'm not a very good actor, so I'm not going to attempt to enunciate the explanation point. Um, what Bob is talking in here is um, uh, still a relevant concept today. It's where is the dividing line between content management and content delivery and kind of larger concepts of functionality of kind of programming. Um, the sections in here, the first section is called what is functionality. The second section is called a monolithic versus mix and match functionality. And I'll tell you, I didn't actually read any of that. I skipped that section. He got very deep into some programming concepts that are probably not relevant today or would go by different names today. I read through this section two or three times. I just couldn't find a way to make it relevant. So I actually did pass over that section. Uh, the next section is functionality interspersed with information. Then there's an interesting sidebar called where functionality sounds like information. Then we have managing functionality like information. Publishing functionality on the web. You'll look forward to that one. I actually didn't read anything out of that section, but um, I'm going to tell you a little programming history and a little web history about Java applets and how Java applets related to JavaScript and how they were sort of killed by Flash. Um, so I didn't read any of that section because Bob talked pretty heavily about uh, Java applets, which are, are just not relevant today. And then uh, there's a section where information and functionality diverge, and then we get into the summary. So it is a shorter chapter. It's a mixed bag. I didn't read some sections. I believe this episode is a little shorter than most, but uh, let's get into it. Okay, so the first section is quite short. It's entitled, What is Functionality? Um, Bob begins, in the software world, a computer-based process is known as functionality. The functionality that a computer application offers casts a human process into a series of human-computer interactions using a user interface. From the standpoint of the organization, you can say the functionality is the way that you do business by using a computer. Simply put, functionality is the stuff that you do on a computer. Unlike text, sound, pictures, and motion, which you experience by reading, hearing, or seeing, you do functionality by requesting or responding to something. I think that's a pretty good definition. Um, I, I think one way to look at content as opposed to functionality is that content is in some senses one way. We generally publish words or video or pictures for people to consume. It's kind of one way from us to them. Whereas functionality is really by definition, I think, uh, two way. Uh, 
So some type of functionality would mean that you're interacting with some process of some sort by providing data or user input, uh, which is then processed and sent back to you. So really functionality is two-way. Um, so a lot of websites are very kind of one-way publishing, but when you get into like intranets or portals or stuff, they might be two-way. You might be expecting to take in as much information from the users as you're sending to them. Um, I'll skip down just a little bit. Uh, Bob writes, in the analysis of computing, the implementation of functionality has taken the following two major steps. And there's two bullets here. The first bullet reads, implementation has moved away from monolithic programs where all the functionality is built in towards mix and match programs where the functionality exists in small chunks known as objects. Um, that's kind of a common theme throughout this chapter is that Bob talks quite a bit about objects. Um, Object-oriented programming certainly predated this book by quite a ways. But I think what he's just trying to do is, is to impart some programming concepts to maybe non-developers. And the second bullet reads, implementation has moved away from applications whose single purpose is presenting functionality towards websites in which the functionality and content intermingle and become hard to distinguish. And then he concludes the section by saying, taken together, these two steps enable you to treat functionality as a form of content. The next section we're going to read is called Functionality Interspersed with Information. I think this is a good section. I think Bob's making um, a very uh, good point here. Um, he writes, before the multimedia age, the state-of-the-art computer application used a graphical user interface consisting of buttons, menus, and a small set of other program controls that gave the user the capability to interact with a given program. The application's aesthetic was efficiency of space and parsimony of language. Programmers prided themselves on their ability to use as few pixels as possible to convey the meaning of each action, long explanations, and anything else considered content was relegated to the system documentation. I think the point that Bob is getting at there is that applications are generally about interaction. They're about you um, interacting with buttons and sliders and all sorts of other controls to send data back to a programming process, which then does some stuff. Whereas content, like we talked about in the first section, is kind of one way. It's meant to be consumed by you. Uh, Bob continues, multimedia applications began to overturn this aesthetic and the web destroyed it. After users stopped working with data and started working with content, the assumptions about how to create an application shifted too. Interspersing text, pictures, and sounds with application functionality became not only acceptable, but routine. And although the small set of standard program controls never disappeared, a whole host of other controls appeared to deal with the interesting new needs of content applications. The text hyperlink and the hyperpicture for example, weren't part of the classic GUI, but were added later to deal with the need to link from one piece of information to another. For the record, I had never seen the word hyperpicture before, and I Googled it, and I couldn't really find anything. I think what Bob is talking about, that is a picture that is hyperlinked, uh, but hyperpicture was a, was certainly a new word for me. Uh, in that paragraph, again, Bob is is getting at the idea that the web allows us to really mix content and functionality together. Um a single user interface would be a combination of one-way information, of one-way content, and kind of two-way interaction. Uh, further down in this section, Bob writes, On the web, functionality and content are mixed and matched to whatever extent the site owners can manage. It's a management issue. To mix and match content and functionality, you must be well-organized. You must have a lot of structure in place that enables you to efficiently store and deliver your functionality where and when you need it. In short, you need a CMS. Uh, so that's uh, the end of that section. Great point there that uh, traditionally applications have been about terseness and simplicity of interaction. Um, 
whereas content is loquacious. Content is about um, conveying larger amounts of uninterrupted application in a one-way fashion instead of a two-way fashion. So that's really the difference between uh, functionality and content. And the point that Bob is getting here is that functionality now is often interspersed with content. You can have a large amounts of content surrounding functionality, whereas that's not something that we had seen before the web came along. This chapter also has a sidebar by Susan Golden from the Golden Information Group. And the sidebar is entitled, Where Functionality Sounds Like Information. And it's kind of an artistic uh, title to the sidebar. Uh, what they're talking about is creating a music website. This is a theoretical. Um, the challenge, number one, create a website that offers music from all over the world. Number two, design the site so that this music may not only be found by scholars, but is also accessible to teachers, students, and world music fans. So, right, that's the challenge they've set up. They want to design a music site to allow people to search for music. The solution, they continue, uh, create functionality that informs as well as guides the users as they navigate the site. To do this, the CMS must be constructed to enable each piece of music to be tagged with meaningful information. Um, I just, a quick sidebar on the, the word tagged. I think the word tagged is just wildly overused in content management. Uh, when we use the word tag, what people normally mean is described, categorized. Uh, when we talk about tagging, people think of like hashtags, Flickr tags, Instagram tags, Facebook tags, uh, small snippets of text that serve to group multiple content objects together that share uh, that little snippet of text. But people really use the word tagged to mean categorized, embellished with the data that makes it easier to find. The word tagged has really become a generic type of word. Um, the sidebar continues, if one was cataloging well-known Western music, it might be adequate to describe the title, performer, and ensemble, and perhaps where and when it was recorded. But because our music was new to Western ears, we also chose to capture, and there's a list of four bullets, language and culture group, instrument, ensemble type, and musical genre. We then created a user interface that made use of all this abundant metadata, creating a navigation system that enabled the user to drill down by region, country, instrument, and then narrow it further by genre. What they're really talking about here is a site that allows you to search through content, which is a very, very common use case. In this particular instance, each musical record, song, performance, whatever their, whatever their MRU is, MRU stands for minimum reusable unit. Uh, however, they decide to drill that down to a type of content object. You know, they may have 10,000 of those. And really the functionality of the site, the real value of the site is the searching and filtering interface to allow people to find that content. So this is a very, very common use case. In fact, to the point where searching and filtering and um, uh, drilling down through different categories, I don't even know if that qualifies as custom functionality now. Uh, back when this was written 20 years ago, that may have been a custom thing, but there are so many tools now to enable people to do that. I'm thinking of the, the views module from Drupal. Uh, the Drupal views module is fundamentally designed to help you filter through large volumes of content. Such a common use case. I don't even know that it really counts as functionality, but 20 years ago, it certainly might have. But they're describing a, a very common problem where you have a lot of content and you need to provide UI to allow people to search through that. And they are calling that um, functionality, which at the time was probably appropriate.
Okay, so the last section I read was a sidebar in which I said that the need to be able to search and filter and drill down through content objects is so common now as to not really be considered functionality. And this next section is entitled Managing in Functionality Like Information. And he puts forth another hypothetical here, which again, I'm going to say has probably been built into modern content management systems. Uh, Bob writes, content management consists of collecting, managing, and publishing content. I define content as information that you enhance with data and put to a particular use. Uh, that, that calls back to, I think, chapter two, which I struggled with, if you remember, all about the nature of content. Uh, Bob continues, I can now extend the definition of content to include functionality that you've packaged for reuse in objects or blocks of programming code. Uh, to illustrate this notion, look at a piece of information and a piece of functionality that you must manage. And here he starts his hypothetical. Suppose that Wingnuts Incorporated wants to make people aware of upcoming marketing events. People in this case means staff, partners, and customers. Making aware means listing the appropriate events on the company's intranet, on the internet, and in email messages. Uh, the following events functionality, events is italicized, the following events functionality is available to Wingnuts in a programming object. Listing event descriptions showing the details of a single event, creating a new event, and deleting an event. What's interesting here is, is Bob's talking about programming objects. There is a section that I mentioned in the introduction, which I skipped, which really got kind of deep into the idea of programming objects. And I'm a little confused if Bob was actually talking about object-oriented programming there. But um, Bob is really talking about a CMS feature here. This is a feature of a CMS. It can list event descriptions, show the details of a single event, create a new event, or delete an event. And he continues, the information that the object can provide for an event is as follows. Uh, name, location, date, description, picture, owner, target customer type, and marketing pur purpose. You can imagine that for the different combinations of person and outlet, which refers to audience and publication in CMS speak, you must use the appropriate set of functionality information as follows. And then there's three bullets. The first bullet is headed uh, staff. Should be able to list, show detail, and create events on the internet or intranet. If any staffers are event owners, they should be able to delete events too. Partners. See events only on the internet site and in email messages. On the internet, they should be able only to list and show details of events. Uh, the information that they see on the internet shouldn't include the marketing purpose of the event. Customers, like partners, see events only on the internet site and in email messages and should only have two options for the web, list events and show event detail functions. So what they're really talking about here, this, this goes back to the sidebar that we talked about previously. They're talking about the functionality to control access, to list and aggregate content, and then to apply different templating for uh, content output. And again, 20 years ago, this may have been custom functionality. This may have been something that you wrote maybe in the templating layer or something like that. Today, a lot of this stuff is really just uh, built into a modern CMS. So that's kind of the difference from when the book was written uh, to where we've come today. Most of what he's described in this section wouldn't need any custom programming at all. So the next section is called Publishing Functionality on the Web, and I'm actually not going to read anything out of this section. Um, Bob gets technical here about the different options you have to put functionality on the web. But the reason why I'm not going to read anything is because uh, 20 years ago, Bob writes about Java applets. 
Um, that is a significant part of this section is the concept of a Java applet. And uh, this gives me an opportunity to talk to you about what a Java applet is or was. Um, unless you were working on the web in, I would say, the late 90s, maybe 2000, 2001, maybe, um, you might not have any experience with Java applets. But in uh, the mid-1990s, when the web first, the web was invented in 93, we all kind of got online in 95. Uh, I was building websites in 95, 96. Um, Java was a big programming language. It was a very popular language. And uh, the web was based on HTML. And people were trying to kind of bridge that gap. A lot of people were working in Java. And they were trying to figure out how can we bring Java onto the web. In fact, JavaScript was originally called LiveScript. Um, but they renamed it JavaScript because they wanted to kind of piggyback on the success of Java. Well, what was available to a web page in the late 90s was what was known as a Java applet. And there was actually an HTML tag called applet. And an HTML tag, you would reference a Java class that you would download. Um, and it was a little Java application that would run embedded in the page, kind of like a little iframe. I mean, it had a little Java application running in there. And if you think that sounds weird and you didn't have an experience with them, looking back, it was kind of weird. And the UI was terrible because if you Java apps have this kind of weird UI to them. And uh, it was very much, it very stuck out like a sore thumb on your web page. You had HTML surrounding this little Java applet. And uh, they were problematic because the web was very simple to develop for. And what had attracted people like me to the web was that you could view source and you could see all the code for a web page. And it was very easy to get started with HTML. And then there were Java applets. And to write a Java applet, you had to understand Java. And I wasn't much of a programmer back then. I had no chance of ever writing anything with Java. So the ability of me to write a Java applet was just non-existent. And uh, Java applets had DRM around them. You would purchase Java applets. I remember one that I used at a company that did some advanced navigation system. You would buy these Java applets. Um, thankfully, Java applets died. What killed Java applets in the short term was Flash. Um, in the long term, what killed them was really the rise of JavaScript and the improvement to the DOM and um, the uh, the event model and all the different things we can do with JavaScript now. And then, of course, the rise of JavaScript frameworks, uh, MooTools and jQuery, and, and even later on, things like React and Angular. That's really what killed Java applets. But in the short term, I mean, make no mistake, it was Flash. Um, Flash and Shockwave were two tools from a company called uh, Macromedia. Although it escapes me, but I think before Macromedia owned them, somebody else owned them before them. And then Macromedia was acquired by Adobe and it became Adobe Flash. Um, that's certainly what killed Java applets. Flash really provided embedded web page functionality. And then thankfully, Flash was eventually killed. And here we are today where we just have very, very advanced JavaScript frameworks that we can directly manipulate the DOM. So the reason why I'm not going to discuss this section, he goes kind of deep into some issues about uh, Java applets, which uh, clearly are not relevant anymore. And it did give me an opportunity to talk about kind of the history of embedded programming on web pages. Um, if you're listening to me now and you're thinking, I've never heard of a Java applet, um, consider yourself lucky. It was not a great technology. It was one of those avenues the web kind of went down and then at a certain point realized it had made a mistake and then backed its way out of where we are now today with JavaScript-based programming is uh, far better than we ever were with Java applets.
Uh, the last section before the summary is called Where Information and Functionality Diverge. Um, Bob has spent most of the chapter talking about how uh, information, content, and functionality kind of come together in a content management system. And now he's going to talk about how they come apart. It's a good section. It's worth reading at length. Uh, Bob writes, where information and functionality management diverge is in the details, as the following list illustrates. And there's a bulleted list here with three bullets. The first bullet says, to collect content, you work with authors or bulk content sources. To connect functionality, you work with application developers. Instead of making an agreement with a person to deliver a type of information, you make an agreement with a program to supply software code segments that create the functionality. You also make an agreement with a system administrator who assures that when the code runs someday, the database or other system that the code works with will be available and ready to respond. Um, this is a good point in this bullet because I think we still struggle with this today. In any content management implementation, there really is code and content. Even if you're working with like a SaaS platform like Squarespace or whatever, you still have templating code. You still have um, code that changes much less often than content and that changes by the work product of a completely different group of people. Uh, so there's a different velocities of change between content and code, and it moves forward in different ways. Content is really stored in the CMS and versioned in the CMS, where code is stored usually outside the CMS and some kind of version control system. So um, the difference between code and content is still very important, very relevant today. Uh, the second bullet says, to manage content, you send it through a variety of workflows that ensure its accuracy, connection to other content, and relevance. To manage functionality, you send it through a variety of workflows to ensure that it works as planned, is the most current version available, and can connect to its data sources. So what he's saying there is both content and code have QA. You QA content over time. You manage content over time to make sure it stays up to date and relevant. You have to do the same for your code. Uh, the third bullet says to publish content, you create templates that draw in relevant content chunks of navigation. You ensure that the content always makes sense relative to the other content that surrounds it. To publish functionality, you create templates that draw in and integrate code chunks with the surrounding code in the template. You ensure that any supporting code registers on the web server and is ready for code that you draw into templates to call it. You also ensure that all connections to other servers or data sources are enabled on the server. What's interesting is these three bullets, I mean, the title of the section was where information and functionality diverge. But in many ways, I think what Bob done, has done here is, is made the case of how similar they are. They're just done by different people and through different disciplines, but they have the same concepts of QA and publishing as well. He finishes this section by saying, uh, by and large, these details fall below the radar of a CMS. The biggest hurdle to overcome is the change in mindset that your developers and organization may need to undergo. They, too, must come to believe that functionality, like information, is a kind of content to collect, manage, and publish. And finally, we come to the summary. It's uh, short. Bob writes, functionality is the capability to interact with a computer to perform a particular task. You create functionality by programming it using computer code and by presenting it in a user interface. Here are some things to keep in mind about modern functionality and how it relates to content. There are three bullets here in a list. In the past, functionality was trapped within massive programs. Today, it is segmented into lightweight objects and code blocks that you can share and reuse in a variety of contexts. Uh, the second bullet reads... In the past, functionality stood separate from information. Today, it so intermixes with text, pictures, and other types of information that it is often difficult to determine just where the information ends and the functionality begins. In the last bullet, it says, in construction and in presentation, functionality shares so many of the attributes of content that you have no reason not to treat it as just another type of content. 
Uh, so that's it from that chapter. Uh, I think it's a good chapter. It touches on um, a concept that's still important today. Any website is a combination of content and the tools that users can use to navigate that content and perform operations on that content. So with a co modern content management implementation today, just like 20 years ago, we still have the concept of what is content, uh, what is integration code, what is functionality, um, what functionality needs to be custom, whereas what functionality just comes built into the CMS. Um, if you start implementing some functional tool, how far do you have to go before you have to start writing code? And how much can you, can you do just using the inbuilt tools of the CMS? So these are problems that have not changed even today. So that is uh, chapter four. Uh, chapter five in the next episode has a really interesting title. After all of these chapters, we've been talking about content and how he defines it. Uh, chapter five's title is but what is content really? So looking forward to that. As always, thanks for joining me and I will talk to you next time.